All right, so we're going to continue Daniel 9. We'll be in Daniel 9 at least one more week. We are talking, remember, if you remember last time, I want you, I don't want you to, to lose uh, the understanding of what's going on. So Daniel 9 begins as Daniel reading the book of Jeremiah, discovering that the 70 years is about at an end, and he has a question. He wants to know what's happening with his people. And if you remember, Leviticus 26 says, if they don't learn, God will multiply seven times. And if they don't learn, God will multiply seven more. And so Daniel's wondering what's going on. Are we leaving? Will we come out of the captivity? And so this leads him to pray. So he prays a beautiful prayer to the Lord. In fact, I told you last time that I feel like the Lord says, Gabriel, go answer his prayer, but wait till he's finished. And let's Daniel finish out his prayer. And then as he comes to them, uh, Gabriel comes and says, I'm going to give you understanding. I want you to understand the things that have been taking place. In verse 24, we read this. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. When we come to have an understanding of what Daniel 9 is all about, you can't forget who it's to. This is not written to the church. This is written about Daniel's people, who is Israel, and their holy city, which is Jerusalem. So all the things that we do in our interpretation need to follow the, the focus, right? What is the focus that is going on. And then there are six things that Gabriel says will be accomplished in the 70 weeks. 70 weeks are decreed. Okay, for those who maybe, maybe I didn't hit on this enough last time, the word weeks is like in Greek, it's, or in Hebrew, it's like our word decade, only it means seven. So if I said 70 decades are decreed for you, you know what I meant, right? So 70 weeks is. 70 hepstead, 70 groups of seven years. So he uses the word week. So we would understand it. For them, seven is everywhere in the things they do. For us, it's, it's a little bit different. So it's a little bit different to get our minds wrapped around it. 70 weeks, 70 sevens are determined about your people, your holy city. What are the six things? One. To finish the transgression. We talked about that last time. It literally means to put an end to the rebellion of the nation of Israel. Is the nation of Israel out of rebellion today? So it isn't done yet. So this is about their holy people. This is about that holy city. So they're going to finish the rebellion. Second part, put an end to sin. Put an end to sin. Third one, to atone for iniquity. And we talked about that. Has atonement for sin been made? Atonement for sin has been made through Jesus Christ our our Lord, right? So the atonement of sin is accomplished. Ultimately, all of these are accomplished in Christ. The question is, was it accomplished in his first coming or his second? Okay. So they're going to put an end to sin, atone for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness. Is that how you would describe the nation of Israel and Jerusalem today? To bring in everlasting righteousness. 
And then, so we got to that point last time. Then, uh, to seal both vision and prophet, and last, to anoint a most holy place. Now, <clears throat> we'll talk about that a little bit more when we, when we get down to it. Uh, I don't want to jump too far ahead of what we're talking about. So we looked at those things. Most of those things have been accomplished. We come to the sealing up of vision and prophecy. That word to seal up, it can, be, it can mean two things. It can mean to fulfill all prophecy. That's what seal can mean, to, fill, to fulfill all prophecy. Or to seal can mean to put an end to any further prophecy. It can be either of those things. And probably in one aspect or another, it's, it, it very well can be both. When we look at scripture, it tells us, in Acts chapter 2, verse 16, it says, well, this, was, this is what was uttered by the prophet Joel. In the last day it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. On your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Now, when Peter reads that, what, it's, it's the day of Pentecost, right? It's the day of Pentecost. The, the disciples are are out praising the Lord, and what happens? They begin to speak in tongues, and the people who are there hear them in their native languages, right? Everybody understands what's going on, and so Peter says, hey, hey, these guys aren't drunk like you suppose. This is what Joel was talking about. The empowerment of the Holy Spirit so that your young men and women will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams. When we look at the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, says this, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. One of the things that you'll hear me talk about is the idea that there are no capital P prophets and there are no capital A apostles. And what I mean when I say that is the authority that Peter James or John had, the authority that Elijah or John the Baptist had does not exist in a human being today. There, God has spoke what he has to speak. Does that mean people can't prophesy? No, you're not a prophet. What's the difference? Authority. What did the prophets of the Old Testament provide for us? More than half of the Old Testament is written by the prophets. What did the apostles provide for us in the New Testament? The entire New Testament comes to us through, did they have authority? Yes, they were given authority by Jesus, right? And so they were given authority and they spoke as God directed and they provided us with the word of God. So Hebrews says, long time ago, God spoke to your fathers through the prophets but in these last days, he has spoken to us, how? By his son. Now, the scripture would lay out for us that <clears throat> when the Lord gave us, when, when the father gave us the son, he gave us everything. It was not, he, there's nothing held back. When he gave the son, he has given us everything that we need. So part of the idea that Daniel 9 is talking about is there's not another 
Testament coming. There's not a new New Testament or a new 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 Testament. But the idea that, oh, it's finished, the Son has come, and now when the Son comes, there are the office of prophet and apostle is finished. So he may be talking about that in Daniel 9, to seal up vision and prophecy. Now, the Bible does tell us there's a gift of prophecy. What did the prophet do? The prophet spoke God's word. How did every prophecy begin? Thus saith the Lord. And it's, we need to be very careful that we don't presume when we're delivering a message to say, thus saith the Lord, if the Lord hasn't said. Right? Well, how can we, how can we utilize the gift of prophecy today? Every time you've shared the word of God with anyone, you have shared the gift of prophecy. You have spoken God's word. Yes? You ever been talking to somebody, they're going through something, and a, a verse just pops in your head? You're on a phone call with somebody, and you, you think of Scripture? But it is wrong for a human being today to try to assume the authority of Elijah. Do we understand the difference, what I mean? Now, I'm not saying God can't speak to you today. God can speak to you today. Hey, he's God. He can do, and he don't even have to check with me. But whatever word God's going to declare to you is going to be for you. And it won't, it, yes, it'll line up with the word of God, and it will not be God's word to you for someone else. Those prophets are gone. Do we know what God's will is? Where do we find God's will for our life today? Yeah, trust me, if you're not willing to listen to the stuff he wrote in the book, he's not interested in telling you anything new. Right? We, have, we, have, we can all know what God's will is. The problem is not, do I know what God's will is? It's, do I want to do God's will? That, those are two different things. So, I don't want to spend too much time on the idea, but I just want us to understand, one, it can be the closing of those offices, right? To seal up vision and prophecy. Why? Why is vision and prophecy sealed up? Because Jesus Christ has come, and he's God's final word. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, has spoken to us in these last days by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he has sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. So I would say Daniel is seeing, the, Gabriel is seeing, Messiah, when Jesus comes, God will have given us all we need prophetically. Okay? So there's not, none of us are going to go home and write the first book of Jackie and deliver that prophecy to the world. Now, can, can God direct me? He has. God has directed me personally, told me, go there, don't go there, turn here, stop there. He has absolutely directed me in that way. But... It's not, he's not giving me an authoritative word for the church. Does everybody understand what, I, what I'm saying? The same way with apostles. Okay, so, <clears throat> so we see that. The other side, right? Remember I told you it can mean two things. The other side is it can mean that all the prophecy that has been uttered by the Lord is absolutely fulfilled. 
Okay, so one we can see <clears throat> accomplished at the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The other one is not accomplished. Are there prophecies that still need to be fulfilled? There are some prophecies that still need to be fulfilled. So we, in one sense, we can say, yes, this is accomplished in the first coming of Jesus Christ through his atoning sacrifice for mankind. In another sense, it will be finished ultimately when he returns. Make sense what I'm saying? Okay, the last one we want to look at, the last, these are all reasons. We haven't even got to the 77s yet. These are the reasons. These are things that have to be, when we say I'm, I'm interpreting the 70 weeks of Daniel, these six things have to be finished. So if I give you an interpretation, but they're not finished, my interpretation is false. That's yeah, wrong. It's not right. So we want to understand the last one, to anoint the most holy. Literally, in the, in, in the Hebrew Bible, in your Bible, you may notice it says, for some of you it will say most holy place, and the word place should be in italics because the word place is not there. But what is there is, the, is this Hebrew phrase, kodes karasim. Kodes karasim means holy thing, to anoint the holy thing. It is never in the entire Bible used of a person. It is used for anointing the implements of the temple, right? When the altar would be anointed or the temple itself would be anointed or what have you, that's the phrase that is being used, the anointing of the holy place. Now, Normally, especially for us, I'll speak for you guys. I'll just assume you all agree with me. For us who are premillennialists, meaning we believe that Jesus Christ will return and then set up his kingdom. For those of us who believe he returns first and then sets up his kingdom. Then uh, as, as we look at this, there are a couple of options. One it is the anointing that will take place in the millennial temple. But if you are with me in Ezekiel, you'll say, but Jackie, what millennial temple? And I'll say, yeah, I'm not convinced there is a temple in the millennial, millennial reign of Christ because those who have faith in Jesus Christ, according to the Bible, are the temple of God. But what we need to understand is this phrase, to anoint the most holy thing. It can be anything God declares to be holy. Come with me back to the story of Moses. Moses is speaking to a bush that's on fire, and he's talking to him. You remember what the Lord said to him? Take off what? Take off your shoes. Why? You're on holy ground. What made the ground holy? God's presence. Okay, are you guys tracking with me? So the idea of anointing the most holy could be speaking of, of the body of Christ or all those who will be saved. Okay, you guys with me? Which includes Israel. That would include all those who will be saved. And, and so they as his temple are being anointed. So when I look at these six things that we talk about, the majority of them, not all, but I'd say probably at least four of them, are things that are, have not yet been accomplished. The foundation has been laid, 
but there is a completed work that is necessary that I would say is accomplished with the return of the king. Okay? So, this is why my interpretation of Daniel 70 weeks is what they call a futurist interpretation. There is also a historist, I don't know if that's a word, a historical view of the 70 weeks of Daniel. In the historical view, because they are not premillennialists, they believe these six things are accomplished in the first coming of Christ. And since those things are all accomplished in the first coming of Christ, the 70 weeks of Daniel is finished. There's no, they're not looking for a tribulation period. They're just waiting for the return of the king. Okay, that's every other view other than premillennial. That's basic. This is really simplified, so I'm, I'm not pretending to be a teacher of post-mill or on-mill, but that is kind of the foundation for what we call a semi-preterist view. Okay, preterist just means past. So it, it's all been accomplished already. That's one way of looking at it. The other way is future. I look at it as future because I don't think those six things are done. Okay? So as you guys are studying, right, because we're all good students of the word, we don't just accept things because Jackie says them. So as you study, you just need to be led by who's, the, who's this word to, the people of Daniel and his holy city, and what are the six things that have to be accomplished in the, by the end of the 70 weeks of Daniel. Okay, And those things ought to fit together <clears throat> in your interpretation uh, as you go forward. Now, when I say that I'm not looking for a millennial temple, it does not mean that I'm not looking for another temple. Right? The Bible tells in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, here's one of those things where we are awaiting... It says this, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day, this is the day of the Lord, that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Now, this is speaking to the church, okay? The rebellion comes first. The man of lawlessness, that's the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness will be revealed, the son of destruction, <clears throat> who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God and object of worship. So he's not behind any God. He likes no God. Okay? This is speaking of the Antichrist. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. This event, in my view, has not occurred. We have an example of it we talked about in Daniel chapter 8, right? You guys remember we talked about Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus, one of the things he did was go into the Holy of Holies of the temple and proclaim himself to be God, sacrifice a pig, spill blood everywhere, and defile the temple. And so Jesus, when he's talking in Matthew 24 about the end of days, one of the things he says is, he says, when you see... The abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet. Run, get out of Dodge. Everything's about to get dicey. Right? Okay, remember I told you when we look at, at prophecy like this in the Bible, there's always two views. Futurist and his, 
let's just say historical. Historist can't be a word. So, futurist, meaning we're looking for that fulfillment in the future. And the reason I say we're looking for that fulfillment in the future is there's not an example in the destruction of Rome of the temple of this occurring. There's not an example. The Titus Vespasian did not go into the temple, sit himself on the throne, and declare himself to be God. That's what Paul describes, right? I'm even, I'm even willing to say, you know, maybe some, some kind of type like that. No, none of that happened. What happened was battles, war, seven-year war, the war of the Jews, seven years from 63 to 70, you know, give or take. They are fighting, Jews are fighting to get away from Rome. And uh, Titus is actually outside the city gates. And there's a siege going on. A lot of people are starving. A lot of hardship is going on. Titus gets word that he's about to become Caesar. So he goes back. And so there's a loosening of that which was uh, holding the siege around Jerusalem. History says during that loosening... Much of the church left because Jesus said, when you see your enemies uh, encircling around you, you know that it's about up. So they, they took off. Vespasian comes back, Titus' son, Vespasian, he comes back, and he encircles the city. The siege goes on. They went, on the night they take it, there's a bunch of Jewish uh, zealots going around lighting fires in their own city, trying to get the people up to fight. So Jews were killing Jews on that night. The story is somebody uh, lit one of the curtains um, at the temple on fire. The temple began to burn. The gold in the temple melted into the cracks of the stones. And what did Jesus say was going to happen? Not one stone. How? So they turned over every stone to get all the gold out of the temple. The temple's gone. But there's not an event, someone sitting there saying, I'm God. You guys tracking with me? The historical view or the person who would say this is all fulfilled in 70 AD will say something to the effect of the Roman soldiers just being in that place. Or uh, there was a a time when they killed some priests. Uh, Rome killed some priests. Uh, actually, I think it was other Jews that did it. But anyways, there was these deaths that occurred in the temple, and that's the defilement. But none of those things seem to line up for me like what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2. So I take a futurist view that there will be another temple built, and the Antichrist is going to enter into that temple and declare himself to be God in the last days. Okay, is there a temple today? Do we know where it's supposed to go? Yep. Are there people who want to put it there right now? Yep, for sure. So, might be one of the things that the Antichrist accomplishes when he first comes into power. You know, all we really need for it to happen is the world to be in a certain level of chaos. Huh. (laughs) And... And everybody looking for someone who has all the answers? Huh. That's crazy. So, hey, it could be it, it could be any time, but before the Antichrist is revealed, there has to be uh, there will be a temple 
for him to declare himself to be God inside. Okay, that's, that's another reason why I take a future view of the 70 weeks of Daniel. All right, so let's, let's uh, see if we can get to, through the next part. We're still not going to get to 70 weeks. Sorry, I'm going to try to get us through the kickoff. Okay, let's look at verse 25. Know therefore and understand from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. If you like to write in your Bible, you should underline that. It's going to be important in a minute. Know therefore and understand, does he tell us when to start the clock? He does. He says, start the clock when the word goes out to restore and build what? Jerusalem. Okay. So he's saying when the clock starts, he says, from the word to go and rebuild Jerusalem until the coming of the anointed one. Now, this is one of the areas where the ESV bugs me a little bit. Because why, why, why do you have to say that that way? Everywhere else, when it talks about Messiah, they just write the word Messiah. But here, no, they want to say an anointed one. So every time the Bible talks about anointed one, it's always the word, if it's Hebrew, it's always the word Mashiach. So he's saying, no, from the decree to go and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah. And then he's going to give us numbers. So you could know from the decree when Jesus, when Messiah was going to be here. So that, is that important information? It's one of the more um, interesting prophecies in the Bible as we look at it. So I want to know when's the kickoff. Okay, I need to know when to start counting from, right? So there are four decrees to go back into the city of Jerusalem, to go back and rebuild. Four decrees. First one is from Cyrus. It's Second Chronicles 36, verse 22 through 23. If you remember... Cyrus, according to Isaiah 45, Cyrus is God's, here it is, anointed one. So Cyrus is God's Messiah to do what? To let the people go out of captivity back to the land. He is their anointed one. And so the Bible tells us Cyrus, in the Medo-Persian Empire, he conquers Babylon. He leaves Babylon, because, you know, let's look at it like this. We, go, we went to war, Desert Storm, you guys remember? And then did, when the war was over, did everybody come home? It was not just done. They had soldiers they kept posting here and there. We had guys we sent out to Afghanistan. We did all this stuff as a part of that overall war. So what happened, Cyrus conquers Babylon... And then he goes out to finish the mop up. And he leaves his general in Babylon who takes the title Darius the Mede. That's the guy you're going to read about when Daniel's in the lion's den. And a few years later, Cyrus is going to come back and 
he's gonna, he'll take over. He leaves a guy back to run Babylon for him. That guy takes the title, Darius the Mede. Later on, Cyrus comes in. In 2 Chronicles 36, 22, it says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. That's the same word that Daniel read, right? The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. Here's your proclamation. And put it in writing. Thus says the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Oh, there's another king, a Gentile king, uh, praising the God of heaven. Right? He uses the Lord's name. If you notice in your Bible, it says, the Lord, the God of heaven, and that's capital L-O-R-D. Yeah, that's the Tetragrammaton. That's the Yahweh, Y-H-V-H. That is the name of God. He says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has charged me to build him a house where? At Jerusalem. What's he talking about? The Lord's house. He's talking about the temple. Do you remember the decree? When do we start? When a decree to do what? Rebuild what? To rebuild Jerusalem. This is a decree to rebuild what? The temple. It's in Jerusalem, but it's not Jerusalem, right? It's going to matter. That's the first decree. That decree occurs in 538 B.C. Okay? The temple is begun. No wall. Well, Jackie, why, why, should, I, why should I carry care, care about a, a wall? Well, because in, remember when we read verse 25, Know therefore and understand from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there will be seven weeks, then 62 weeks. It shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in troubled time. Is there a moat at the temple? No, squares for people to sell and buy, uh, maybe a little bit, but he's talking about the city of Jerusalem here. The wall will be built. So the second decree comes from Darius. Darius, this is a later Darius, not the early, not Darius the Mede. This is after Cyrus. Darius gives a decree in 519 BC. You can read it in Ezra chapter 6. Verses 6 through 12, he makes a decree basically telling all the people who are giving the Jews there, trying to rebuild the temple a hard time to knock it off. Stop giving these guys a hard time. Uh, he says in verse 8, moreover, uh, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of the house of God. What is his decree about? Rebuilding the temple. Right? So we have two decrees so far for the rebuilding of the temple. Third decree, 458 B.C. This is the favorite of the historical view to take this decree it, by Artaxerxes in 458 B.C. This is a letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest in regard. And it says in verse 16, you guys can take the time to read the whole section, um, the cool thing about this, this one is he asks all the people that are given the Jews who are rebuilding the temple a hard time to pay taxes 
to the guys building the temple. So it's, it's kind of cool. But this is what he says in verse 16. He says, with all the silver and gold uh, you will find in the whole uh, province of Babylonia, and with the free will offerings of the people and priests, I vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. So his decree to go back is to finish what? The house that's in Jerusalem. So he's talking about the temple. You have four decrees. Three of them are focused on the temple. One is focused on rebuilding Jerusalem. So that's the one I'm going to choose. Now I want you to understand in the historical view, the guys who say this has all been wrapped up uh, with the first coming of Christ, they're going to start counting from 458 B.C., and they're going to arrive in 28 A.D., um, roughly the time when Jesus is being baptized. And so their declaration is at the baptism, Jesus is being anointed. He's the proof of the anointed one, and he's going to finish. Uh, his, we have his death, burial, and resurrection, which is going to accomplish the six things that we talk about needing to be done. And then the final seven years is the year from 63 to 70 A.D. for the destruction of Jerusalem. <clears throat> so that's why a historical view doesn't have a tribulation period. Everybody understand what I'm saying? You may not like it, but you understand the, the words that are coming out of my mouth. So they go from the third decree. Now, why don't I count from that decree? Because it's still about what? It's still about the temple. In my view, it's still about the temple. I'm looking for one that is about Jerusalem. The last decree, decree number four, is Artaxerxes Longimanus. It occurred on March 14th, 445 B.C. March 14th, 445 B.C., we read about it in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. You have Nehemiah looking sad before the king. The king asks him, hey, why you look sad? Because, you know, if the cupbearer looks sad in the presence of the king, it was reason for the king to cut your head off. So you didn't get to have a bad day around. The, you can go home and have a bad day, but you couldn't have a bad day in front of the king. So Nehemiah is having a bad day. So the king says, why is your face sad? It's there in verse 2. Seeing you are not sick, this is nothing but sadness of heart. And Nehemiah says, I was very afraid. Yes, because there's a chance he could lose his head. So I said to the king, I love this part. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Uh, why should my face... Uh, why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's... What did he say? Yeah, but before that, he said the city. The city. The place of my father's graves lies in ruins. Its gates are destroyed by fire. And the king said to me, what are you requesting? So before he asks, it says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. It couldn't have been a very long prayer. I prayed to the God of heaven and I said... If it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I might rebuild it. What's he rebuilding? The city. 
You guys see the difference? So because he's rebuilding the city, the kickoff date is going to be March 14th, 445 B.C. This is where we start doing math. But I hate math, so we're going to do math next week. <laughs> I'll, give you, I'll give you just a couple of snippets. I'll give you a couple of snippets so you, don't, you can't say, we still have not talked about 77s. So this is what he gives us. Oh, look at that. My alarm's going off again. Guess what time it is? 8 o'clock, which should tell me to be done. Lesson number one. Two, it's time for me to take my pills again. I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to think that out a little better. Okay, so listen. In verse 25, Daniel 9, Know therefore and understand from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one of prince, there will be seven weeks, seven sevens, that's 49 years. When Ezra goes back, when Nehemiah focuses on rebuilding the city, it takes... 49 years for him to finish the city. That's why there's a division. He says there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. So he makes a distinction. Seven sevens is, I'm willing to do that much math. Seven sevens is 49 years. That's also the year of Jubilee, by the way, which they will celebrate at the end of rebuilding the city. Year of Jubilee, yay, we got it done. So it took 49 years, seven sevens. Then it says, then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again, the squares, the moat, but in a troubled time. So they're not ever going to really have their freedom, right? They never really have their freedom. They're under the oppression of other leaders, uh, primarily um, from this moment forward, it's going to be uh, oppression under the Greeks and then oppression under Rome. Right? You guys remember Rome was there when Jesus came? So they're going to have those things. Uh, but the next set of sevens we're going to look at is 62. So there's an event that happens in seven sevens, 49 years. What happens? The finish of construction to rebuild Jerusalem. It took 49 years. The temple, it's not going to get done until about 64 A.D., they're going to they're going to they're going to build it but there there's some remodeling that's going to happen. Right? There's actually a lot of remodeling that's going to happen. Then the next event is 62 sevens. So who knows how much 62 sevens is? 400 See, I know somebody had was a math whiz. 434. So you got 49 years, 434 which adds up to 483. Oh, man. So I'm pretty sure it's that. 483, say. So if I say there's 77s, that means there's 490 years prophetically that God's talking about. If 483 of them are finished at the first coming, what's left? Seven. Which would be what we look at as the tribulation. Now, why does it break? Why does it... Slow down, we'll have to talk about that next time because I'm already over. Okay? But we understand the kickoff. We understand who the prophecy is to. And we understand the six things that have to be accomplished in the prophecy. Amen? All right.
we shall continue one more time. We're almost there, and we will wrap up Daniel chapter 9. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time that we can look at your word, study the scriptures that are laid out before us, Lord. We want to know and understand. We want to comprehend the things, God, that your word is calling us to, that we might know um, the plan and purpose that you have. And God, that we would understand and recognize through it all that you are our sovereign king. You are in control. History has not slipped out of your grasp. It is all moving toward a conclusion that your word has declared. So God, I just pray that we would be ignited with a desire to understand, to know, to put together the the dates and the times so that we might see the beauty of this prophecy laid out so exactly. Lord, may we be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the height and width and depth and breadth of the love of God expressed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we give you all the praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen.